0: east.co Hello, I'm Ted Sides and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Dr. Ashby Monk, the executive and research director of the Stanford University Global Project Center. Ashby was named by CIO Magazine as one of the most influential academics in the institutional investing world. His current research focuses on the design and governance of institutional investors, with specialization on pension and sovereign wealth funds. Ashby's most recent book, The Technologized Investor, is a practical guide showing how institutional investors can gain the capabilities for deep innovation by reorienting their strategies and organizations around advanced technology. He also recently released a significant white paper on transparency and innovation for institutional investors for the Biden administration. Our conversation follows up an early podcast, episode 29, which is replayed in the feed. This time around, we discuss the power of asset owners, issue of transparency, need for innovation and obstacles to achieving it, how and when to create change, Examples of climate work at New Zealand Super, the Australian Super Funds, and Canadian Pension Funds, and Ashby's handful of technology startups focusing on these challenges. Please enjoy my conversation with Ashby Monk. Ash, it's great to see you.
1: Thanks for having me back, Ted.
0: All right. Now, we have a whole bunch of stuff to cover, some new, some painfully continuing But why don't we just start with this overview of why is it that you continue to spend your time thinking about and working with these asset giants?
1: Oof. That's the question I ask myself just about every morning. It's hard. These are organizations that, as you know, because you've been running this remarkable podcast for four or five years now, and congratulations on it, by the way, Ted. I, I feel like You've become an input into all of the work I do. You're not just an output anymore. So you're creating data and information and knowledge that is really valuable. So so why am I doing this? I really truly do believe, Ted, that these are the most important organizations on the earth. And that's full stop. I don't even have a caveat around that or a constraint. They're the foundation of the modern social welfare state. So if you take public pension funds, corporate pension funds... Even foundations and endowments, they all exist to solve some social problem or facilitate some kind of critical social activity, you know, funding old age retirement, keeping nation states solvent during financial crises, things like that. And at the same time, when you've got this these organizations that have such profound importance for the modern social welfare state, they're also the foundation what I often call the base of capitalism. They are the organizations putting the capital in capitalism. With $120 trillion, their capital flows out into the hedge funds, the mutual funds, the private equity funds, the venture funds. It's the endowments, foundations, pensions, sovereigns, insurance companies, and family offices that are kind of setting those base layer incentives. And so they're just remarkably important. They have one foot in capitalist markets. They have the other foot sitting there in the social welfare state. And so I continue to think that if we can make these organizations function better, make better decisions, be smarter about the way they allocate capital, that we can just drive like step change improvements to the way we live, how our capitalist system functions, all that kind of good stuff. So that's why I'm still focused on them.
0: So most of the time when you talk about, particularly as you get to the larger institutions and you're talking about capitalism on one side and social welfare on the other, those may try to walk together, but they often wear very different shoes. So as you do this work, we've heard on the show from others the challenges of governance and what happens when you don't have these investment-minded people making investment decisions. What are you seeing as the leading edge of what needs fixing?
1: It's amazing when we have a whole business schools set up to try to understand how businesses should make decisions. And in businesses, we have a pretty clear focus on shareholder, shareholder focus or stakeholder focus. When you get inside these public pension plans or endowments in universities, it becomes much harder to unravel what they're optimizing for. You can ask these organizations specifically, what is your goal? What does success mean? And I've done this in a research project in the last four years. And I have to tell you, I was blown away that most of these organizations actually have different definitions of success. And so part of just getting to success is really understanding what success means. Once we have the goals and objectives in place, then we can start to look at things like, is the governance structured such that we can make sure the organization is properly resourced to meet those goals and objectives. And it begins and ends, as boring as this sounds, with governance. I get pulled in to do consulting projects a lot and people are like, oh no, we wanna do a project around, should we do active or passive? And without fail, that active passive conversation inside a pension fund actually boils back to governance. Does the board understand how to build an organization in order to achieve its objectives? And then what is the strategy that you can go and implement in order to achieve those objectives? But it's still governance and managing the organization and making sure it's fit for purpose.
0: When you look at these organizations, as you said, and you found they have these different goals, a lot of times we think of, okay, down in a foundation, we understand it's a school, it's a foundation for a long time, a pension fund's funding retirement. What are those different goals and maybe the ones that kind of surprise you of what it really is compared to what you might think on the surface? Sometimes you'll see goals
1: that have inherent contradictions in them, which I always chuckle at, which is like, we exist to preserve capital and grow capital at the same time. That's my favorite one. When I see that written into a mission statement, you're like, exactly how are you going to go ahead and do that? But they do, you know, that's there and they build portfolios that they think justify that. I think many will have soft statements of why they exist. We exist to meet a pension promise we exist to bolster a university, we exist to ensure this foundation is producing cutting-edge research. It's the translation of those goals into something mathematical that is often missing. So we are in the business of taking capital, putting it to work in financial markets with the hope of pulling it out of financial markets at some point to do something with it. That's what all these asset owners are doing. What are we doing with it? What is that mathematical liability that we're planning for. In the case of public pension funds, yes, like you'll have actuaries come along and do a pretty rigorous examination of the liabilities. They'll tell you what your asset allocation strategy would be, but then it gets complicated because the assumptions underpinning those asset allocation strategies begin to feel contrived. If you just put more money in hedge funds, then you have a chance at meeting the 7.5% return target some of this stuff starts to feel like we are building portfolios based on a full set of foundational assumptions. But I think if we can begin to model the cash that we expect to get out of these organizations, then I think we can all start to get on the same page in terms of how we build portfolios, what's the cash that we're putting into the portfolios, and then what can our reasonable expectation be for the cash coming out. That's a very simple statement. It's like a cash flow model. But like, that's what we do. We take the capital, we put it into the financial services industry, the financial markets, and we need to get the cash out at some point. But like, find me pension funds and sovereign funds that have been that explicit and built the model that proactively. It's very hard to find.
0: A lot of what goes into a model like that is sort of that granular level information building it up, right? You could think of company-level information, fund-level information. You wrote this not-so-short paper for the Biden administration about transparency, and love you to talk through how you're thinking about where we are today with transparency in these pools of capitals and where we can get in, in a reasonable period of time.
1: That's 86 pages of beach chair reading. It's perfect for those of you out there that are just really trying to gobble up some wonky policy So that you can fall asleep at the beach. I think what we were doing, it was really when it was we were funded by Schmidt Futures and really the guy there, Tom Khalil, who had been Obama's head of the Office of Science and Technology Policy. He commissioned us to think about how we can bring innovation into these organizations that have all the capital and really think about whether or not we can unlock that capital for things like solutions to climate change, sustainable infrastructure, really just like change the flow of capital? And my immediate answer is, yes, if we can get the right data and analytics inside these organizations, like really understand the cash that we have and the cash that we need and how you build portfolios, then I think you could start to build new pathways for that capital. I can remember for me, I was working with a large Canadian pension plan on one of their big tech projects. Gosh, this would have been... 2012, I had been at Stanford for two years, and I was doing this big project up in Canada. And I can remember the deputy CIO saying, look, the reason we need to get our data organized, like truly get our data unified and organized, is because I can't make a plan for the future unless I know where I am. We need to know where we are before we can plot where we're going. And if we can't figure out where our portfolio is in real time, then how can we figure out what we need to optimize for going forward? And that was, for me, the light bulb moment where I was like, oh, wow. So like, if we can get data organized, then we can begin to plan for the different trade-offs going forward. And it seems obvious to say this, but like, there are many different pathways every investor can take. You can get downside, uncorrelated returns from a hedge fund, or you can get it from a toll road, or you can get it from clean energy infrastructure, and the decision that you make there will have consequences for your portfolio, but also for the world. And so we recognize that if you get the right data, the right level of transparency, you can really change the flow of what they're doing. And so the project that we did for the Biden campaign and then Biden transition and and Biden team and administration now was really this paper that was like, okay, what are the types of data that if you can get in, To these organizations you can really change the way they invest and we found a couple really interesting things we found that if you can really kind of model out those cash flows that we were talking about cash flows liquidity unfunded pacing commitments and all of that you can drive in fact there's a uk-based pension fund that did this you can drive these organizations to hold less cash and diversify their portfolios less As in, go deeper with funds and hold less cash and invest more, because with the right data and analytics, you now have more confidence in your cash position and your commitments, and so you can do more with that cash. So that was a telling thing that we wrote about. We talked about climate risks being measured in the portfolio and how we've seen plans change their portfolios to try to build resilience once they measured those climate risks. Obviously, the last time I was on here, I went off on fees and costs, so I won't do that again here. But I'll tell you, if you measure fees and costs and you get that transparency around fees and costs into the organizations, inevitably, you're going to have these boards of directors saying, gosh, is there a way we can get more aligned access to these exposures? We've seen tons of examples like CalPERS and CalSTRS and even UC Regents where fees and costs have driven changes in their portfolio, just the transparency. And then most recently, the neat one that I saw was PPF in London recently, Pension Protection Fund. They measured the diversity and inclusion in their organization and portfolio and realized the moment they started measuring it that there was like fundamental problems. And so decided to immediately set new targets and change the way they invest. And so it's that recognition that, gosh, if we can just get transparency into these organizations, start measuring this stuff, If you can really understand where your portfolio is, coming back to that, then you can change how these organizations invest and you can change the flow of capitalism.
0: So one of the confusing components of what you're describing to me is it's shocking to me that a lot of these organizations don't already have a high degree of information about what's in their portfolios. And this, again, as you know, coming back from my experience like two decades ago where I happen to be at Yale, but I have a good feeling that back then we did know what was in the portfolios. And so what are the obstacles that these organizations face in having enough transparency to make these kinds of informative decisions going forward?
1: I love this question. I'm glad you asked it. I think there's a perversion here that I'm happy to call out and make (laughs) all your listeners uncomfortable, which is I think there's a lot of investment professionals at these organizations that believe that if they reported it to the stakeholders, the stakeholders wouldn't let them pursue the strategy that they believe in their heart of hearts is needed to meet the obligation of the plan. So that the We can't trust the stakeholders with the information because they won't let us continue to spend three and 30 on these amazing venture funds, four and 40 on these amazing hedge funds, two and 20 on all the private equity funds because the people don't understand that it's net returns that matters, not the fees really don't matter. And what I think about that is it just limits our ability to have a conversation about how we should resource these organizations, and how we should be going about producing these returns. There's nothing good that can come long-term from hiding this stuff from our stakeholders. The other thing I've noticed inside organizations is that there is a little bit of a career risk that goes with revealing this stuff. You know, if you were sitting in the seat, and you signed the deals that led to these massive payouts in terms of carry checks, it's a bit worrying when somebody says, all right, let's roll up our sleeves and let's figure out what we've been paying people. There aren't many ways. In fact, I'd say there's only a handful of ways to get fired in this industry. And one of them is innovation and looking different from your peers. The other is if you've been shown to do something that kind of is seen as against the social mission of the fund you're representing. And there's a lot of stakeholders that would say creating billionaires among hedge funds on Wall Street might go against the social mission of the labor pension plan in some state. And so people like to keep this stuff close to their chest because it gives them that flexibility to maneuver. And I get that. I just think that's like short term solution whereas the long-term issues that we're facing really need that data to come out so we can properly properly manage these funds.
0: All right. So beyond fees, let's turn to that topic of innovation. I know you've been on this for a while and it isn't always easy to get these asset owners to be innovative in any way. So let's start with what are the other obstacles beyond the compensation resources in place that prevent some of these pools of capital from thinking differently from how they have in the past? Innovation
1: inside the capital allocator world is really hard.
0: In fact, one would
1: almost argue that we designed these organizations not to innovate. Like innovation is a bug, not a feature. They are bound by prudent person rules, which is another way of saying, follow the herd. There's fiduciary duties, which kind of is like a little bit nerve wracking. Anytime you're thinking about putting money in Bitcoin, Most of these organizations have monopolies over the asset base, which means Stanford Management Company isn't going away. CalPERS isn't going away. But the people in those organizations can be fired. And so you as an employee of these organizations, and I'm not suggesting that people are doing this consciously. I'm saying you aren't facing the threat that the organization is going out of business. And so if you're thinking rationally about your job and your long-term career prospects, you're thinking to yourself, look, I don't need to do anything drastic because the organization is gonna be here. And so there isn't a real incentive driven by the fear of death, (laughs) put another way. The next thing is the governance problem. A lot of the boards of directors think they're protecting their organization from failure by telling their teams they can't do first-time funds or they can't invest in hedge funds below a certain AUM, which is another way of saying you can only invest in funds that are really expensive and have like demonstrated that they don't really need your capital. And so when you get into a negotiation with them, it's going to be brutal. So that first fund issue, I feel like, has been pretty perverse. The career risk we touched on, but A lot of the people working at asset allocators, there's a lifestyle choice and a compensation choice that goes with that. And we're not paying them to take these types of career risks. If you're the chief investment officer of a pension plan in middle America and you're making $100,000 a year, why are you going to do something drastic to put the plan on a better path four or five years from now today? It's like, We're just not compensating you correctly. And then last but not least, I would also throw some of the service providers in there. The consulting businesses are based on scale. So if they go and do a diligence on a manager, a deep dive and really understand that manager, they want to use those reports many times because that's how they make the business work. That's how you get the margin. Doing like a deep dive on a new manager just doesn't make sense in terms of like the economics of running a consulting business. And so there is all of this status quo bias like on steroids. There's just all this push to go with all of the existing winners. And if you're some innovator or you're trying to launch something new in this industry, it's really hard. There isn't a lot of incentives for people to be innovative inside the asset allocators.
0: So in all the default settings, say just stay with inertia. How do you go about making change?
1: I've spent so much time over the last four years thinking about innovation and like, how do we help pension funds innovate? Well, we've begun to learn why there's underperformance, there's excessive fees, there's unwanted or unintended risks that are getting baked into these portfolios. So let's just set to the side that we probably want these organizations to change and if you're unhappy with capitalism, then like to some extent, you're unhappy with the incentives these investors are setting for the entire system. And so they should change. So the why is there? Let's set that to the side and to say that's not too debatable. What are they going to do? There's a lot of stuff that they can do. They can seed new managers. Like I know you've had a bunch of people on from Capital Constellation. What a remarkably innovative platform that is. They're putting GPS in business and participating in like the means of return production. What a fascinating example of like innovation and asset owner world. You can change your organization like we've seen in Canada and Australia. The challenge is how and when. How is like we've seen, and I've written about this, this like collaborative model of investment where pension funds and endowments and sovereign funds will come together and collaborate. They'll pool resources. They will pool career risk. If I'm working with Ontario teachers and I'm CalPERS on an innovative project, I've got cover because I'm working with a fiduciary bound, prudent investor that has a solid reputation. And so you do see this type of collaboration driving innovation. At the same time, I'm starting to see more organizations build R&D teams, innovation units where the incentive structures are a little bit different. But moving beyond how, there's like a really important question of when in the past the way that we did innovation in this industry is we waited for crises to hit all this pent up innovation would happen after a crisis like if you go back to the perfect storm of 2000 2001 where we had this miracle of like low interest rates and low equity returns it doesn't seem like a miracle but it was at the time all of a sudden all the actuarial and investment consulting models went out the window because we had the assets going down and the liabilities going up at the same time. And people were like, whoa, 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 whoa. like a 60-40 portfolio doesn't work. This is a perfect storm. And that crisis drove something called liability-driven investing, which seems totally obvious and normal today. The 2008 crisis, that triggered a huge wave of internalization as people kind of lost faith with some of their external partners, but also and probably more importantly, was the wave of risk factor based asset allocation and the unraveling of correlation across asset classes and getting to the core of what are the nutrients of return that came out of that crisis. And so now you can't find organizations that don't talk in terms of risk factor in some way, shape or form. And that was a function of that crisis. The crisis that we're living through now will go down as the crisis that like triggered the digital transformation. And frankly, the integration of ESG, but that'll be kind of a secondary part of that digital transformation. But I don't want to wait for crises, Ted. I don't want to have to like have four degree temperature change. And then people are finally like, okay, yeah, let's finally get this climate stuff in order. I want to get these things dialed in before the crisis. And so that is what led me back to transparency. I think, and as we talk in the Biden paper I think if we can bring transparency into these organizations and not, like I said, prescribe what these organizations do, but instead prescribe what these organizations report, then people can start to have a conversation about, hey, how are you producing returns? How are we producing returns? What are the risks you're managing? And like, are there alternatives? If it's all hidden away, sadly, the organizations that become good actors – start to look like bad actors. People see this PPF report and like the fact that they're upset about their gender pay gap and they're taking steps. People are probably like, oh, PPF, bad actor. Totally the opposite. They measured it. They're doing something about it. When people saw Calper's problems with fees and costs in the private equity space four years ago, there was articles in the Wall Street Journal and Naked Capitalism, and all this places like how bad they are. But they measured it and reported it. And then that was the ammunition to do something different.
0: If you're looking at, you're on the board of, say, one of these institutions, and in an ideal world, that institution is now transparent, and they are reporting everything you want. What are the set of reports? So you've mentioned things about costs and fees. You've mentioned things about effectively risk factors and positions. What is it that you're trying to get at as a starting point to say, okay, we're now transparent and we can do more?
1: I'd love to open that conversation up in like a group. In the Biden paper, we talk about setting up a presidential commission to define what these things are. I have the ones I want. I want everybody to know how much it costs to produce return. I want to know what it costs to move the money, hold the money, and manage the money. Those are different types of costs and different functions, and we can get to the bottom of all of it. So for the professional institutional investors of the world, you don't get to tell your stakeholders you got free trading because you're on Robinhood. You have to take the next step and get in, understand what like the market impact is and all these different things of your strategy. The other one I would go for is climate risk. Climate risk is one of these long horizon risks where it's like existential in some cases for portfolios. If you own huge amounts of real estate in Florida or in New Orleans, you should be reporting that. And all I'm looking for is the reporting. If you wanna justify that climate change isn't real because that's your belief, go for it. But the reality is, until we report this stuff, people can kind of sweep it under the carpet. The other one I think is useful just right now, especially given everything that's happened in the US over the last two years, is diversity and inclusion. Let's just get data on how we are doing as a pension community on investing in people with different backgrounds. It's a super uncomfortable topic. And I recognize that I've been to my fair share of investment conferences, and it's a lot of people that look like me and you, Ted. But like at a certain point, let's just measure it and figure out are the diversity numbers in our portfolios the same as the diversity numbers in our society? You know, I'm not asking to change the weightings. I'm just simply saying, Let's figure out if we are reflective of the society that we live in. And if we're not, at least we now understand that we're not, and we can begin to have some pension plans take a meaningful step towards solving that problem.
0: What have you seen in some of the ones I know were your favorites in terms of how they manage capital, say Australian Super and New Zealand Super? How are they tackling these issues?
1: New Zealand Super is one of the most thoughtful climate investors in the world. They've truly integrated it into their decision-making and they live and breathe that kind of long-term moniker. They're really trying to look out into the distance and understanding how they should be tilting their portfolio to be sustainable. And in fact, I think in the last year, they reached out because they've relaunched their entire climate project. And so what that tells me is there's no end state. It's like the way we build technology in Silicon Valley. We don't put out a piece of technology and call it done and like wash our hands and walk away, the best investors that are thinking about climate are continually renewing their commitment to understanding the consequences of climate and thinking about how they integrate that into their portfolios. And I can tell you that New Zealand Super, despite the fact that you can look in their annual report and you'll learn more about climate investing than anywhere else probably Available, they're still back to the drawing board trying to figure that out. I've got huge respect for that. Australian super and the Australians in general, they're just the future of pensions in the world. They're competing for members and they're competing to survive because the regulator, after the Royal Commission, was like, we don't need this many super funds. So, in a world of like monopolies, Australia is this like beacon where you actually see organizations living with the fear of exit. And that is pushing them to professionalize and mature and begin to integrate these things into their decision-making. And oh, by the way, Ted, one of them, REST, Retail Employee Super Trust, was sued by a member for not taking climate change seriously. And yes, the lawsuit was settled. So I don't know if we actually have a full detail on what the settlement was, but what I can tell you there is no super fund in Australia now that isn't like, oh my gosh, we need a we need a strategy for like managing and integrating this ESG into our decision making, in particular climate. What are you seeing from the Canadian plants? No, I've been doing this for two decades now. And the Canadians were the ultimate professionals in the beginning. Arm's length governance, actually double arm's length governance structures, truly focused on commercial and fiduciary duty, which is another way of saying they did not get distracted by the politics, which having done projects in the US, boy, that's a luxury to be able to be in an operating environment. In theory, politics generally doesn't make its way into the Canadian pension plans. And for a long time, the Canadians unfortunately linked the climate discussion to that stakeholder influence over decision-making discussion. And sometimes the senior executives were like, look, this is an issue we're kind of having to deal with, but it's getting in the way of making the performance to meet our objectives. You do remember, Ashby, like our objective is to meet the, the beneficiaries' needs. And it's like, of course, there's a point in the future where climate change harms that ability. And it's that Realization that I think has taken place in the last three, four five years inside the Canadian pension plans and turn them from kind of being slow to move in the climate space to being truly innovators. There's like eight plans that came together, commissioned a working group, and they're collaborating on the development and all these new climate risk analytics that they're trying to bake right into their decision making. And that launched in the last 12 months. That's Awesome. That's collaboration to facilitate innovation with a long-term view. So I'm pretty pleased with that. Obviously, we'll see how it all plays out and whether or not it kind of gets baked into the true decision-making. The challenge I have in all this, Ted, most of this stuff is in another zip code. The climate is sitting in the ESG team and the ESG team is not really in the investment team. And when you read the investment memo, there's all the investment risks and then there's the ESG risks but the reality is the ESG stuff is just pre-financial risk. I'm on the Future of Finance Council at the CFA, and it's actually Roger Irwin who instructed me on this. He's like, look, we should just be thinking about ESG as pre-financial risk. It will become financial if you give it enough time. Why doesn't that sit with the risk teams?
0: Where does that conversation break down? Because it feels like in the last year or two that ESG is top of mind. You're seeing it In coming from the CIO into the investment operation, and whether that's sort of pre-investment or part of the investment process, it doesn't feel like it's being siloed to the side. Why is that not happening at some of these institutions? This is
1: the great project for the next five years, and this is hopefully a call to action for the academics and researchers and consultants. It's starting to happen, but the key is that word integration. And the better word is translation. We need to translate ESG into financial speak. Allocators are starting to take ESG seriously. Like we've seen through the the recent crisis, ESG does offer some downside protection. That's in the data. ESG offers a chance to really get deep understanding of assets, which hopefully helps you figure out what you want to hold for the long term. But the reality is, we have to take that next step and translate ESG into things like discount rates, cash flows, damage projections, insurance costs. And look, I don't want to like toot all the things that I'm doing, but like, as you know, Ted, I've been building a bunch of companies over the last five years, which is sort of a weird thing for an academic to do. Part of the reason I've been doing that is I came to this realization that we actually just need companies to start this hard work of like translating alternative data and ESG data which I think is a sub ESG is a subset of alternative data into things investors can easily integrate even into a spreadsheet. I'm a huge hater on spreadsheets normally, but let's just acknowledge where the investors are today. They're modeling stuff in spreadsheets. So we need to give them a number that they can put in their spreadsheets. One of the companies I'm a co-founder of, I'm on the board of, is this company, Futureproof. We've built hardcore financial economics to project the financial cost of climate change. We can show you the annual property damage across the US and actually now the world out to 2100. We can look at corporates and help you understand in your equity portfolio in dollars and cents terms, how climate change is going to affect those corporates. But the key was like, Building a business that is in the service of that translation function. It's not just like, can we make the climate science better? There's tons of great climate models. What we think the world needs now are climate models that are translated into financial models. And so that's what we did with Future Proof.
0: What are some of the other tech startups you're involved with these days in line with this whole thesis?
1: future proof I'm on the board I was a co-founder it was started on my balcony at Stanford been going 2 years the the other one that is kind of in this specific thesis would be net purpose this amazing woman Sam Duncan she came out of Leapfrog she'd been at Goldman Sachs and she was like look there's a problem with the way we measure impact we've got all these ESG ratings but like the reality is if you want to change your portfolio you have to have a sense of how this ESG framework actually drives impact? How much carbon is being reduced by my investments? How many people are getting vaccinated by my investments? And so net purpose is literally trying to create, it's like ESG, but it's ESG and impact in the sense that all this SDG world could be boiled down into metrics that you could then integrate into a decision making. And that's what net purpose is all about. And then there's all the work I'm doing at Adapar and the work that I'm doing at RCI, which is tangential to that because we're all about helping investors model their future through something I call portfolio navigation. So we were talking the beginning, we were talking a lot about cash flows and, and how the investors are using spreadsheets to do all this stuff that's like mission critical, projecting when to rebalance you want to do a fund commitment and you need your analyst to go away and figure out, well, what are my unfunded commitments? And I need this now so I can figure out how much to commit. And then based on my set of exposures, what are the likely outcomes in terms of capital calls in the future based on different scenarios? Like all this stuff was living in spreadsheets. And so we wanted, before Adapar, I was co-founder and, and president of this little company, RCI, and we built this toolkit over four years called Navigator. The analogy I would do is like, before we think about navigating in your portfolio, let me like walk you through what changed in personal navigation. And then I'm gonna bring that into the world of investing. In personal navigation, like when I grew up, we had these paper maps in our cars, trying to get from A to B was like playing battleship. You would like figure out the city and the key and and then it would give you a grid and you'd put your finger on there. And the green and the red lines, that wasn't traffic and no traffic. That was highway and freeway. This was like a literal paper-based world. And that's only 20 years ago. And so what happened? Well, three key things happened to personal navigation. We got GPS on our phones. So now we know where we are all the time. We're able to define our destination very tightly and With math. Google indexed the world of opportunities for us. So if we know where we are and we know we want to go to a restaurant in San Francisco, Google can help us figure that out to the very precise point. And we also then know the paths between here and there. And all this has been possible thanks to the rise of obviously GPS, but it's really this alternative data world, ESG, alternative data. Remember the E is environmental, so like traffic on a road, you might think of as environmental data. Ways, which is another way of driving, is kind of the social behavior of traffic. How do traffic jams prosecute across urban environments? Well, it's because you have gawkers and, and agent-based models will tell you how traffic jams work. Just put it to the side and say the whole world of personal navigation has been completely upended data models and this incredibly elegant device, the phone. And what we were thinking at RCI was like, what the heck do we need to build this simple of a framework, not like having 40 Excel spreadsheets, but an elegant framework for helping a chief investment officer understand the best paths to take in order to meet their goals and get to their destination? Well, you need same things. You need GPS. So, In our context in investing, it's like, where's the portfolio today? We need granular, unified data. Going back to that Canadian pension plan, we need to know where we are to know where we're going. We need to know the routes and we need to know the goals. And if we have the routes, goals, and location, then we can begin to optimize. Our vision at RCI and with the Navigator software was ultimately to support this intelligent, data-driven decision-making among asset allocators, multi-asset allocators that was like aligned specifically with their tailored and unique goals. Where are you? Where's your portfolio? Everybody's different. And what is your destination? That's also different. And so guess what? The advice we give you on which roads to take to go between where your portfolio is and where it needs to go should also be unique. And it should be stress test to certain scenarios that are relevant to you. And we built all that in software. It took us four years. We built it inside some of the pension funds you've already mentioned. I called in some favors at Australian Super and CBUS and Coal Pension Trust and a few others. And we worked with them hand in glove to make sure that we could build these projection tools. And we did it. And in fact, with this system, we were able to help some of our customers change their strategy change the amount of cash they're holding, change the diversification they require because they weren't worried about capital calls that were too big. And then the part that we learned, especially coming through COVID, was it's incredibly hard to do the GPS part. We had nailed the modeling, the forward-looking deterministic models that allow you to get this view. We could do all the private equity fee structures. We could do all of the liquidity gates and hedge funds. All of this is modeled down in a very granular basis. What was really hard to do was to get all the data unified, to get it into the system. It could take six months. It's like when you said at Yale, we had all this data. It's a huge lift to get this stuff out of the custodians, out of the general partners, out of the hedge funds, and get a true sense of where your portfolio is in real time. And that's where the partnership with Adapar came because Atapar, I guess I'm biased at this point, but even before we joined forces with Atapar at the end of last year, they were like the ultimate leader in data aggregation, analytics and reporting. There's hundreds and hundreds of engineers, incredibly ambitious team trying to solve this data aggregation, analytics and reporting problem, which is another way of saying they are building the satellites and the cell towers for your portfolio to do GPS. And so when we joined forces, it was like, all right, there's the GPS. We've got Google Map functionality of the routing and the destination. And the hope here is that we're going to build this entire portfolio navigation toolkit for investors. And coming back to this notion of ESG, once you have that portfolio navigation that's tailored to you, then you can start to do things like constrain your portfolio based on different themes. I care about sustainability. And so I'm going to build a portfolio map that aligns with that sustainability goal. I need to get to the same destination and you know where I am, but show me a route that aligns with that sustainability goal. That's the same as saying, I want to avoid toll roads. I want to go and drive on a scenic route to San Francisco. We should have that. It's not that hard tech. We're literally not putting people on Mars with this. This is like, it's a coordination problem. We're not filing tons of patents. It's a software problem and a data aggregation problem and a process problem.
0: You come through a lot of these organizations that are at that leading edge of innovation. They're trying to do the right thing. And then I know we had talked about, you did work with a certain state and for the heck of it, let's just call it the state of Pennsylvania. (laughs) And it sounds like that one didn't go quite as well. So I'd love to hear the story of your involvement and what happens when one of these things goes awry. Yeah, that was a hard one.
1: And as a rule, Ted, you probably don't want your pension ever under investigation by the FBI. From what I read in the news is where they are now. But I'll need to be a little bit careful. I was the consultant and I'm sure there's NDAs out the wazoo and and certain people are listening to this, holding the NDAs right now. The report is public. And so you can see the difficult things we wrote and the positive things we wrote. And, you know, I was even grilled as part of the commission and you can go watch the video. But what I can say is this, I was surprised going into that project, one My sense in it was that all of the actors actually, like we talked about earlier, the reason for non-transparency is that these actors feel like they want to be able to pursue the goals that meet the needs of the system, and they don't trust the other parties to allow them to do it. I think that was what was kind of happening here. I didn't meet anybody that I was like, wow, you're dodgy. Like everybody's great. Everybody's mission driven. Everybody wants to do the right thing. The problem is the environment is incredibly political. I don't mean partisan. I mean politics. And so the way that people are making decisions, even the way that I was allowed to conduct interviews of the staff at some of these plans was completely devoid of trust. My interview at one of those organizations was me sitting in a room with 40 people, and every single person had to say what they were going to say to me in front of the other 40 people. So you can imagine how candid that was, (laughs) or lack thereof. It was a strange project. But in the end, I give those guys credit, especially former treasurer Torcella, for saying, Look, we're a state plan. We have a difficult bogey that we have to hit in order to meet our pension obligations. And we want to do what's needed. And they brought me in and they launched a pension commission. And they, like, once again, I would say here we are talking about them and they're under investigation by the FBI. But part of me is like, there was a palpable sense that they wanted to improve. And so I'm not saying they're good guys, but I'm saying, and maybe they are good guys. But I am saying that like, it's interesting to me how like, we do create these disincentives for being the good guy.
0: So for those people who are probably not inclined to go read the transcript of what you said in public, what was the worst or most surprising thing that you found that you've already said in public?
1: Yeah, the performance wasn't what I actually expected it to be. After meeting with them, I was actually quite impressed with their portfolio construction and the way they thought about investing, and when we got done with all of the analysis on a risk-adjusted basis, it was much worse than I thought. And then there was a sense for me that this was a governance challenge, and that because the board struggled to understand the complexity of the portfolio that was being built by the team, that the team could get ahead of the board in terms of its investing. And so it's not surprising, but it's like all these organizations need boards of directors that can like hold the staff accountable, that understand derivatives contracts and how they're priced and what the tail risks are for certain different assets. It didn't jump out at me in that context that there was a bunch of people on the board that had that knowledge and skill to hold them accountable. And this project didn't start out as a governance project. It started out as a question Should they go passive or should they keep being active? And the project ended quite clearly as a project on governance.
0: All right. I want to ask you a couple of closing questions. Before that though, would love an update on Long Game.
1: Yeah. So Long Game, we are personal finance application to try to help young, but really all Americans save more money. So the thesis is young people, Americans are having trouble saving money for a bunch of things, but especially retirement. And they struggle to engage in their finances. They find it scary, daunting. And so Lindsay Holden and I started a company, I guess probably five years ago, to try to make this process of saving money fun and build, <laughs> sounds cute, but like build games around it. And our thinking and our thinking remains that this is the next phase of behavioral finance and what we think of as like the nudges mm-hmm. of, personal finance, we're going the next step, which is to bring a bunch of extrinsic motivators, games, variable rewards, into the toolkit to push positive financial behavior. And we are doing great. I mean, we're now working with a series of banks to help them with their customers. The pivot along the way was to say, our IP is in engaging young people in their finances. Acquiring savers at much lower cost than all these other banks and getting them to save money and then do positive things in their personal financial world. And so we started working with banks and we have a whole series of banks that we're working with now. We're in 50 states and we're continuing to fight the good fight of pushing young people to get on top of their finances and pulling all the levers we can to do so. You can still win a million bucks on Thursday
0: if your numbers come up, just for doing the right thing. All right, Ash, what's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family?
1: I think it's probably for me, especially in this COVID world, the garden. I've been stuck here in Los Gatos, California with my family. And we have a little bit of space because we live up the hill. And I've been planting trees. You can order trees, they get delivered. I think I've planted 60 trees in my backyard and front yard and everywhere I can find a tree. It's probably like driving my neighbors crazy at this point. And you'll show up at my house in 30 years and you'll be like, what the hell was going on here? But it's kept me sane by getting out and
0: digging holes. Uh, What's your most important daily habit?
1: We've gotten in a routine with our kids, my wife and I, every day at dinner time, We all have to like go around and say the two things we're grateful for. There's so much pain and anxiety and insanity in our day-to-day existence that flexing this muscle every day of being grateful has actually been awesome. First off, it just inspires interesting little conversations around the table when you hear what your kids are actually grateful for. But it's also like a nice exercise to go back and remind yourself that you have cool stuff going on even, even when your companies are almost failing and you're fighting for their lives and the world is kind of melting down around you. What's your biggest pet peeve? Bad listeners. It happens to me where, like, I sense people are just waiting for my mouth to stop moving so they can do their next point. And I just can't stand that. I think it, especially in the world of venture capital and entrepreneurs, where like everybody is, says their story so many times because they're obligated to, it can actually just lead to like one robot talking to another robot rather than human conversations. I love to like try to disrupt the flow of somebody's spiel.
0: And so that's the way I'll do it. All right. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life?
1: Yeah, this is a good one. The two for me that I picked are Jagdeep Bashir and Elliot Donnelly. So Jagdeep, I think I met him in 2010 and he just didn't see me as an academic. I think he saw me as like something else. And so he gave me the confidence that my ideas weren't just ideas and that we could actually build stuff around them and i became a, an advisor at aimco and we did cool projects i have a couple of photos from back then where like the first time he flew me up to edmonton which by the way was where i was born flew me up there we had this whiteboard and we like literally whiteboarded i don't know 3 or 4 like wild projects that we wanted to work on together and we recently went back to that whiteboard and we did them all it's like This amazing thing that I was sitting here in academia thinking deep thoughts, and he was like, "Why don't you like do these deep thoughts?" And so I'll I'll be really grateful to him forever for breaking me out of that and giving me that confidence. So how about Elliot? He convinced me that I could build companies. The classic thing for academics is they become advisors or they're on some scholarship board, and he's like, "Look what you've been doing with all these pension plans and sovereign funds." What I was doing with the pension plans and sovereign fund was trying to create role models that other people would replicate, but that's dicey. You're in the world of government and pension funds, leadership changes, and and the big idea that you've been working on for two years gets shut down. That's happened to me. And so he's like, there are these companies that you have ideas for. Let's build them. Let me help you build one. And he co-founded a company with me, and we built it up. And it was like the most- freeing thing because it wasn't a wild success, but it was enough success. And it just gave me the confidence that I could go out and do those kinds of things. And I actually never backfilled my time at Stanford. I had taken leave at Stanford halftime to go do that stuff with Jagdeep Deep and then go do more consulting. And then ultimately, it was like Elliot that was like, don't do consulting, build companies. And so that's kind of how I end up with RCI and Future Proof and Long Game and Purpose and all these things that I'm working on. I can kind of tie back to Elliott's influence.
0: So what's the biggest mistake that you made and what did you learn from it?
1: We've talked a lot about how hard innovation is today and the challenges that investors face. And for me, I think the biggest mistake I made was really pushing hard on friends and I guess you'd call them clients to innovate without having helped them get the proper innovation infrastructure in place. Innovation is super hard. There's failure. And by the way, you cannot innovate without failure. The two are inextricably linked. It's like saying we want to be efficient and innovative at the same time. They're opposites. Innovation is failure and learning how to manage failure. And so if you're going to have failure in these organizations, you need to create the proper structure. It means moving away from the herd. It means making your staff profoundly uncomfortable many of them have had these jobs for decades they don't want to do something new board members need to be like brought on the journey because you're going to deviate from a benchmark and so innovation to me i don't want to say this too loudly because i want to have innovators but let this be a warning it's like one of the few paths to getting fired because you really are deviating and so if i had to go back again I think I've done probably 12 major consulting projects in my life, from Mongolia to Sweden to Oakland. I would like really start with an understanding of, do you have the cultural incentive structures, et cetera, to do the innovative projects we're talking about? Because I don't want you to get fired. (laughs) Literally. I've seen articles written, I've seen people lose their jobs, and often I fear it's tied back to some of these innovative projects that I've been a part of.
0: What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you?
1: Yeah, so that one would be just giving without thinking about what you get in return. It served me well. They call it paying it forward. But my parents were incredibly generous, not necessarily wealthy, but generous, often giving time, giving things without sort of ever having a handout. And maybe that's what parents do. That mentality of like what can I do and it just really stuck with me and I've tried to bring it into my professional career and I think it served me incredibly well because there's just a lot of people that have invited me into their ecosystem because I added value to that ecosystem without asking for some immediate compensation. You're building that relational capital by doing that in the same way that you build human capital by going to school. And studying, paying it forward, providing value without defining the value that you're extracting—that's how you build relational capital. And I think that's where I've been really lucky to have a lot of it.
0: All right, Ash, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? This is what I'm like trying to do for my kids. Life is incredibly painful, and
1: at least it has been for me. I mean, it may look like it's been fun, but it's like a whole series of. Do you have the capacity to do the work required. And I feel like through rowing in college and then cycling in Europe, and then lately I've been doing these like epic long swims, I've kind of figured out how to get my head right with suffering and pain. And obviously like there's healthy suffering and I'm not saying everybody, you should just run into brick walls. I'm not saying that, but like doing the work and understanding that the work flows through into some outcome that's the recipe for success. I keep pushing my kids to do these sports that are not instant gratification sports. That's like running, swimming, rowing, hiking, where it's like every single time you go out, your brain is like stop and they have to push through it. For me, I have that stop thing happen like four times a day. You're building a company right now called Capital Allocators. How often do you feel stop? It's constant. And so like when you're building stuff from scratch and there's failure all around you and people are constantly telling you, you can't do it and that you're going to fail. And yet you preserve the kind of focus and persevere. That to me goes back to like what I learned in rowing and, and cycling and now swimming. Just keep doing the work. Have confidence in yourself.
0: Ash is great as always. Thanks so much, man. Thank you so much for having me. It's great as
1: always. Congrats again on this amazing podcast you've built. It's a great resource for me personally. Thanks,
0: Paul. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show and I thank you for it. Have a good one and see you next time.